following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 31. The Lord spoke to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hor, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with divine spirit, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge, and every kind of craft to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood in every kind of craft. Moreover, I have appointed him with Mohoelab, son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given skill to all the skillful, so that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of the meeting, and the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin with its stand, and the finely worked vestments, the holy vestments for the priest Aaron, and the vestments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense of the holy place. They shall do just as I have commanded you. Thank you, Jesse. Um, I think that that passage of scripture has the highest um, utensil ratio (laughs) of any of our other passages of scripture that we've ever read here. (laughs) Um, And that is an interesting passage of scripture, isn't it? I'll tell you more about it in a little bit. Uh, Before I do get to that, though, I want to tell you a couple of other things that are going on right now. As Pastor Jesse mentioned, we have the school-age children with us in the sanctuary today, so welcome to all of you kids. Um, We are so glad that you're here to be part of this part of the service, too, which that usually you miss out on. I mean, that term might be debatable. Um, It's probably more fun most weeks to go down to the kids' space, uh, but we miss you when you're not here. So thank you for being here with us today. We have tons of um, volunteers in our children's ministry who are traveling for the long weekend, and we've just been planning this for weeks to have the kids with us in this part of the service today, Uh, and we're glad that you're here. Um, Those of us who are not used to having the children with us might notice that the room sounds a little different when the kids are with us, and we'll turn that into a feature today. It's going to be lots of moving around um, and activity and stuff in in this sermon, which I hope everybody will find fun, not just kids, but also adults. Uh, Speaking of which, there are two art projects that are happening in church today. You didn't know you were coming to art class today, but I need two kids to volunteer and help me pass out the Play-Doh. I almost said whoever gets here first, but I think that might cause a dangerous situation. You can all help. We'll we'll figure it out. (laughs) Okay, so if there's more than two of you, you have to each take some of the little baggies and pass to the grown-ups. Wow. Have you ever seen that video of the, the raccoons up, like, coming up through the porch? <laughs> Everybody gets a Play-Doh today. Everybody of all ages gets a Play-Doh that you can keep forever or you can return it at the end if you don't want Play-Doh in your life. But everybody gets Play-Doh during the service today. Yes, it's going to be one of those weeks. And we have three different colors. Um, if anybody doesn't have Play-Doh nearby being distributed by a child, please let them know. While they're passing that out, I'll tell you about the second art project that's happening, and that's the community canvas at the back of the room. If you all look where I'm pointing back there, you'll see that there's a a paper canvas, very large, and there are some magic markers there. Now, everyone in the service today 
Did you hear what I said? Everyone in the service today is invited and encouraged, I almost would say exhorted, to make it more spiritual sounding, <laughs> to make some piece of art on that canvas today. Now listen, just make something beautiful. Draw something beautiful. And I don't mean that you have to judge your own drawing as a beautiful drawing. We're, we're going to get rid of that right away today. I'm going to say it many times in many different ways. All you need to do is draw a picture of something that you think is beautiful, whether your drawing meets your criteria for beauty or not. Now, anybody can go do that at any time during the service, including all through my sermon. In fact, starting even right now, someone could go make their way to the canvas and begin to put something on it. And what happens when we do this all together is we get a really fun, cool, and ultimately very beautiful result seeing how everybody interacts. So kids of all ages are invited to do that. Okay, anybody who didn't get Play-Doh yet? All right, kids, if you have Play-Doh left over, just, just put it on a seat next to you and um, we'll be good to go. Or you can bring it up here and put it in front of, in front of me. <clears throat> okay, let me give you another little programming note, which is that three weeks from today, on October 30th, we have decided we're going to move back to one service for this season of our life together. And I don't say season of the year because I don't know how long the season of life will be. Uh, seasons of the year are a little bit more predictable. But what we have found, and this is something that came out of our leadership team retreat over the weekend, is that the benefits that we get from having two services right now in this season are not really outweighing the benefits that we would have if we only had one service. So, um, starting on October 30th, we will be back at 10 a.m., one service, everybody together. And one of the things that makes that really nice is that a lot of the things that we do socially and kind of to build community together happen right after church. And with two services, it's really hard for that to be accessible to everybody equally. So that's three weeks from today. We're going to finish out this series with two services at 9 and 11. And on October 30th, we'll start something new um, called The Work of the People. And that's going to start uh, our return to one service for the time being. I expect we'll be back at two services at some point, but I don't know when. And I'm excited for the the energy that this will give us in more ways than one by being together for one service. By the way, enormous thanks to our leadership team um, who gave up Friday night and all day yesterday to be together and, and um, spend time in vision and discernment and um, helping to build this community into what it needs to be. So, all right. Everybody got their Play-Doh? I got mine out. By the way, this Play-Doh was made with love and care this week by Cheryl Preston, a longtime uh, preschool teacher. She was your preschool teacher, some of you. Um, and so this is, this is like artisanal Play-Doh, which is very fitting. Okay, everybody take your Play-Doh out. I'm going to ask you to make a few things this morning. All right? We're going to start out... <laughs> yeah. You can make a utensil later. There, there will be a wild card session uh, very shortly. I think utensils would be great. We're going to start out by making a planet. Oh, look. I'm already done. Right. You might want your planet to be a little bit less lumpy, but planets are actually kind of lumpy, you know, if you, get, if you get far enough away. And then they get smooth again if you get even farther away, but you know what I'm saying. All right. Everybody got your planet? Who made the best, who made the best planet? The prettiest planet? Just kidding. We're not talking about it that way. I told you. That's not how we judge artwork in this room this hour. 
All right. You've got your planet. Next, we're going to make a snake. Everybody got your snake going there? My snake looks like it ate a rat. <laughs> it has, has a lumpy part. Uh-huh. Your snake looks like it got flattened. Okay. All right, everybody got your snake? All right. You ready for the next one? Next, we're all going to make a duck-billed platypus. <laughs> ah, see, it's, it's not so easy playing God, is it? <laughs> I did this in the first service, and not one, not two, not three, but four different people presented me afterwards with their duck-billed platypuses, or platypus eye. I don't know how you pluralize that. By the way, octopus is not pluralized octopi. It's pluralized octopuses because it's Greek, not, Rom not Latin, or it's Latin, not Greek, whatever. That's something I've learned, and I wanted to share it with you. Anyway. <laughs> okay. You can keep making whatever you want with your Play-Doh. You can make a utensil. You can make a vestment. <laughs> you can make a platypus. Uh, you can make whatever you like. The Play-Doh is yours to keep if you want it, but I encourage you to continue to make stuff with it while you're listening to me talk, and it will, make the pass, it will make the time pass faster, I promise. Now, I would, like to, I would like to tell you about two important principles that are both found on the first page of the Bible. Did you catch that? Two important principles that are both found on the first page of the Bible. And principle number one is the first sentence of the Bible. Some of you had to memorize it at summer camp like I did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How about a little bit farther down that page, Genesis 1.27? I'm going to get this one. I have to read this one because I don't have it memorized perfectly. And there, there are pronouns in this packet, passage which make it interesting, and I want to make sure I get them all right. Genesis 1.27. This is principle number two. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the first principle is that God made the world. God made everything in it. God is a maker, principle number one. Principle number two is that each one of us is made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but for the purposes of today, what I'd like you to think about it meaning, because I think it's a big part of it, is that you are made to be like a maker. God made the world and all that's in it. God made you. God made you in, the, to use the seminary fancy term, imago dei, which means in the image of God which means you are made like God in some way, and I think one of the ways that you are made like God is that you are designed to make things. You are designed to be a creator. You are designed to be an artisan in the image of the master artisan. And here's the wonderful thing about that passage, about that verse, and about that principle. This applies to you no matter what you believe or don't believe about God. I think this is true about you, even if you think God doesn't exist at all. Because this principle, as I read it, has everything to do with being human and nothing to do with being religious. Every single person made in the image of God 
is therefore made to be a maker. Those are the two principles I wanted to share with you from the first page of the Bible. And the reason I wanted to start with that is because it sets up what I want to say about our foundational value of beauty. During this foundation series, it's five weeks long, we're talking about the five foundational artisan church values, awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. We're doing them in a different order than I memorized them. Awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. Today's the third week we're talking about beauty. And could we put on the screen the, the, the definition of our beauty value so that everyone can see it? Uh, we are inspired by the breathtaking artistry of our creator and seek to reflect that beauty in all we do as we co-create with God. By the way, ignore the QR code. The QR codes have been up there the past few weeks to send you a link to our um, values kits, the PDFs of our studies for each of our five values that the people of Artisan put together in 2019 when I was on sabbatical. But I was not aware that the QR code generator uh, that I was using had a trial and then that you had to pay for it. So I got notified this morning via email that someone had scanned an expired QR code and I was like, I don't even know what that is. What it is is they want money for this to work and I'm not going to give it to them. So you can go to artisanchurch.com slash about and find the PDF and look at it on your phone that way. And if you want a printed copy, just come and ask and I'll print one for you before you leave today. But that's our beauty statement. We're inspired by the breathtaking artistry of our creator and seek to reflect that beauty in all we do as we co-create with God. You can hear in this statement some of the echoes of what I said about our community value, which ties the human tendency to be in community to the fact that we're made in the image of a God who exists in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. So we connect the theology of the Trinity to the idea of being in community with each other. And here, we connect the theology of creation. And by the way, I don't by creation mean like Adam and Eve riding dinosaurs. That's nonsense. But what I mean is the idea that God made the universe and everything in it. And that means that we are made like God because we're made in God's image that we are also prone to making things. Now what um, I also want to share with you is one of the verses that's been really important to Artisan. Have you ever, do you have a life verse? Did you have a life verse? You church kids know what a life verse is, right? If you don't know what a life verse is, bless you. Just go forward in life and enjoy being who you are because you will know, <laughs> it's fine. But our life verse as a church, which is to say the verse that's like one of the most important ones for us, is Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to put it on the screen here so that you can see it, uh, and I'm going to read it. For we are God's handiwork. Actually, we're all going to read it. Will you read it with me? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Leave that there for a minute, and let's look at it. Why did I highlight the word handiwork? Because it's the most interesting word in the passage. This, by the way, comes from the NIV translation. There's a ton of different translations of the same Greek text in the New Testament. And it says handiwork. If you were to read this verse, Ephesians 2.10, in our Red Bibles, which is the NRSV, it's just a different translation, different committee of people who translate it, just like it would be true of the Odyssey or the Iliad or something like that, um, you would see that it says, for we are what he has made us, which is accurate and true, but it doesn't have quite the punch of handiwork. It just means that we are, we are what God designed. There's another translation that says we are God's masterpiece which I really like. And the reason I like handiwork and masterpiece better than other alternatives that we might see are because the Greek word in this verse is poema. 
Can you guess what English word comes from the Greek word poema? Poem. Of course you can guess. We are a creative work. We are the output of an artist. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's handiwork. We are made to do good things. We are made to make good things. We are made to appreciate and create beauty. You can go ahead and put the beauty definition back up there for us so that we can keep looking at that as much as we want to during this. Now, notice what this definition does not say, which is, we love beauty, therefore we value pretty things. <laughs> right? So if beauty is one of those words that carries so much weight with it. If I were to say beauty, we could talk about things that are pretty, right? We might talk about an orchid or a Monet. I actually don't like Monet all that much, but some of you love Monet, so I include it. We might talk about a Bach chorale. But all of those things are subjectively pretty anyway. Some people like Monet, some people like Caravaggio, some people like Bach, some people like fish. Um, <laughs> there's no accounting for taste. Some people recognize that fish actually is the modern-day Bach. I mean, <clears throat> listen, the point is, the point is, we don't define beauty as prettiness because that is a subjective uh, measure. And what we want to point you toward in talking about beauty as a foundational value of a Christian church is the idea that there is beauty that is inherent Simply in making something because God makes things and God made us. And so when we make things, we are tapping into the divine. Whether or not someone else thinks it's beautiful, and also, by the way, whether or not we're doing it for religious reasons, that is true. And it is also true, perhaps paradoxically and at least, for the purposes of creating some dramatic tension in the sermon, it is also true that our foundational value of beauty talks about breathtaking artistry, which reminds us that when we see something that is so beautiful or hear a work of music that is so beautiful, or pick your favorite art form, the one that speaks to you the most, and recognize that there's beauty in it, when that happens to us, it points us toward a truth, which is this. Beautiful, breathtaking things, whether they come from the natural world or from human-created art, inspire us toward the divine. And I'll talk in a little bit about why I attach a religious label or even directly religious content to it in order for it to be divine. But I'll start with that passage from Exodus, that weird passage with the utensils in it that Jesse read a minute ago, Exodus 31. That passage, to me, provides evidence of the fact that the people of God knew that beautiful things would help them connect to God in the context of religious worship and observance. God tells Moses he's appointing Bezalel and this tribe of artisans from the tribe of Dan to be the artisans 
who would make the tabernacle, which was the, uh, the portable worship space for the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. And you saw the extravagant attention to detail. You might have seen mention of precious metal. This is a very costly endeavor. And what it communicates to me is that beautiful things connect us to God. And by the way, when the people of Israel settled for what they thought was going to be their permanent home, turned out that they had some bumps along that road, but when they made a a physical structure that was intended to stand forever, not to be broken down and reassembled somewhere else the next day or the next season, when they made the temple in Jerusalem under the leadership of King Solomon, they recruited another master artisan to be involved in this, but he didn't come from the people of Israel at all. Solomon reached out to a Gentile king and said, send us, he said by name, send us uh, Huram Abi, I think is the, the artisan's name, because he's the best in the land. He's skilled at all the different things we need skill in, and we're going to pay him handsomely to come and uh, decorate our permanent temple, which is the dwelling place of God, where we receive and understand and experience God's presence in the physical location on earth, right? In the context of of, uh, Hebraic religion and practice, this is very significant, that they would have hired a Gentile who wouldn't even have been allowed in the temple after it was done, by the way, to come and make the temple beautiful. It's sort of the the equivalent of hiring an outspoken atheist to come and decorate a, a cathedral, Right? If you tried to do that nowadays in a lot of churches, you, you, the budget would be voted down. We can't pay an atheist to decorate our sanctuary. They're just going to take that money and spend it on atheist drugs or something. Like, <laughs> well, that's not how we would do it. I mean, it might be how we would do it, but we're kind of weird. The people of Israel knew that the, the, the higher calling was to make something maximally beautiful because that would draw them closer to God as opposed to having someone who was religiously aligned with them make something that was less beautiful because that would not draw them as close to God. That's pretty like dramatic and drastic truth, if you ask me. And I don't want to spend too much time on this point because it's not good for me and my cynical nature to do so. But I will say that I think the church kind of has that backwards nowadays. That the church is much more concerned with getting the religiosity of an artist lined up and correct according to its standards, even at the expense of the quality of the artwork. Without naming names, you could, you could make your way through a, a Christian bookstore and find examples. And it's sad because the church used to be a major patron of the arts. The church paid handsomely to have good artists make amazing art in its sacred spaces. And if you, if you look at the lives of some of those artists, they, they wouldn't get elected to the church board, if you know what I mean. They might be told they weren't allowed to be on the worship team. So this speaks to a major important distinction for how we as Artisan Church understand art in the church. 
which is that we don't need the labels of Christian art and secular art because they're irrelevant and meaningless and unhelpful in the first place. How do you tell if a piece of instrumental music is Christian or secular? You can't. Is it, is it the person who makes it? How do you define that for them? How religious or holy do they have to be before their instrumental music counts as Christian music? Sometimes I do a quiz when I talk about this topic, and I put a series of visual artworks on the screen. And I start with something that's blatantly religious, like crucifixion or the Annunciation or the, a birth of Jesus type of scene. And I say, tell me, tell me if this artwork is Christian or secular. And they say, oh, Christian. And then I do another one. That's Christian. And then, and eventually, I to like a picture of a flower. And they go, I'm not sure. And then we get to a picture like a totally abstract work of art that has no f- discernible form. How about that one? I don't really know. So, and then we get to other forms of art that are maybe they find offensive, and they go, well, that's definitely not Christian. So we're clear on the boundaries, but we, uh, on the, on the, on the um, extremes, but the stuff in the middle we don't know. And the reason is because it's all completely irrelevant. They're not sacred and secular. They're sacred and profane. We could talk about that distinction. But there is no difference. There's nothing that makes a work of art religious except that it's inspired by the divinity within the artist who is made in the image of a maker and therefore is prone to make stuff and to make beautiful stuff. Beauty is extravagant and we aren't always comfortable with it in the church because beauty doesn't preach a sermon. At least one that we can all agree says the same thing. And therefore define whether it's good or bad, orthodox or unorthodox, etc. Beauty doesn't feed the hungry, except that it, you know, at least not their physical hunger. Beauty doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't get anything done. Not a measurable task that you could produce a widget or get, you know, paid at a job to do. Beauty is not useful, except that we can't live without it. What I'm trying to say is that beauty is divine, that creativity is divine, art is divine. I'm trying to tell you that the artisan belief is that creativity honors God without requiring an explanation or a disclaimer or an explicit tag, by which I mean this is explicitly religious. So join us all for Fire Pit Fridays and bring your secular CDs because we're going to burn them. <laughs> By the way, I said that in the first sermon and a, uh, a child who I think is 11 years old said, if you burn secular CDs, do you have to burn your house down if it was built by a secular builder? <laughs> what? I mean, <laughs> I was like, well, that's smarter than anything I said today. <laughs> Go in peace. Seriously. But do you see how, and his name was David, do you, know, do you see how David drove that point home in a way that's so much better than anything I could possibly have said? 
Think about it. Okay. Beauty is also ephemeral, and it's hard to talk about it, and it's, it, connecting it to religion is challenging. And if you think about a person who is part of the artisan community, whatever that means for you, you might share some religious values with me and with most of the people here. You might call yourself Christian. You might not. You might just simply be a human being who's in the room today. How would I, as your pastor, whether permanent pastor or temporary until you can get out of here, pastor, how would I try to teach you to live a life of beauty that acknowledges and embraces the divinity in it. I have a few things to say, and then I'll be done. The first one is make something. Are you still making something with your Play-Doh? Make something. And don't worry if it's not as beautiful as you want it to be. Don't worry if it's not Michelangelo's David. It's the making itself that is the beauty. I'm pointing you toward right now. Because you are expressing the divine image in yourself when you make something. That's part one. And part two is that tension again, right? Be moved by beauty. I would even go so far as to say be spiritually profoundly moved to appreciate the mystery of the divine in things that are beautiful without requiring yourself to be able to articulate a spiritual message about it. That was a really long-winded one. My preaching teachers in college and seminary would give me a, a C- minus on that second point, but it's complicated. Do you see it's complicated? Appreciate beauty. Be moved by beauty. Find yourself in the presence of mystery and divinity by beautiful things without having to assign a specific religious message to it. It's still pretty long, isn't it? Does it make sense, though? Are you annoyed by the tension between those two things? The first one said, just make something, and it doesn't matter how beautiful it actually is. And the second one said, stuff that's beautiful enough can move you to the divine. Well, they're both true. So the third piece of advice is lean into that tension. You don't have to think of yourself as an artist. You can if you want. It's wonderful if you do. You don't have to think of yourself as an artist to think of yourself as a maker who's adding to the beauty of the world. And you don't have to think of yourself as religious even to join in this beautiful and mysterious thing of making something and of appreciating that which has been made as a way to draw you closer to God. Embrace that tension. In a minute, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, which um, if you would like to continue to make art on the canvas during the prayer, you can. If you haven't gone to make it yet and you were looking for a moment when no one would be looking at you, nobody's probably going to be looking at you during the prayer. Just a, just a little hint. Um, but you can continue to add art to that canvas for the rest of our time together. Let's pray. God, who made all and who made us in your own image, Give us hearts to see and hear and know that all the beauty we see 
comes from you and through you. Give us courage to believe that we are beautiful too. Inspire us by the power of the Spirit within us to embrace and express the divinity with which we were made. O God, grant us good taste and also good grace that we might not judge ourselves or the works of other human hands too harshly. And may the works of art that surround us and come out from us truly glorify you in ways we cannot possibly fully understand. Meet us in the mystery. Meet us in the beauty. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.